Welcome to the Gird Up Podcast. My name is Charlie Ungemach, and we're glad that you're here. I'll be joined in just a moment by this week's guest, but before that, I want to say thank you to all those who help support the Gird Up Project. All of our content here at Gird Up is available free to anyone anywhere in the world who might benefit from our message, and we want to keep it that way. But we rely upon the contributions of our listeners in order to do so. You will never see any paywalls or exclusive content here at Gird Up. That being said, it does cost money to put a show like this together, so if you find what we're doing here valuable and you're willing and able to do so, please go to www.girdupministries.com, click on the menu, and select Buy Us a Cup of Coffee. That $5 donation goes a long way towards keeping this podcast going, and it helps us reach other men just like you. God's blessings, fellas. Enjoy the show. All right, gentlemen, you're listening to Gird Up. My name is Charlie Ungemach. I'm the founder and curator of this podcast. And today we've got some Man Talk Monday. I want to talk a little bit about Christian nationalism. Now, Christian nationalism is a little bit of a buzzword in our culture at the moment. Um, the liberals are the ones who seem to have brought it um, back into the conversation. And it is not complimentary generally when it's being used. Um but it is an objective term that we can look into and talk about a little bit. And they're not completely off base in their accusation of um, American evangelicals becoming Christian nationalists. So we're going to talk about that a little bit um, and try and better understand how the Christian, specifically the Orthodox Christian, as I keep saying, I'm a Lutheran. Um, a very conservative, theologically conservative Lutheran. In other words, I adhere to the um, Augsburg Confession and the Lutheran Confessions. I believe they are the most accurate representation of the teachings of Scripture um, that I've ever read. So, what um, what Orthodox Christianity teaches and what um, American Evangelicalism and mainline Protestantism and even... Uh, Frankly, the basic tenets of Catholicism, they all kind of fit in the same camp. And if you listen to last week's episode, I broke those down a little bit. What it comes down to in the simplest sense is that Orthodox Christianity teaches that I can do absolutely nothing to save myself, um, that I am dead in sin. Dead things obviously don't bring themselves back to life. Since I am dead in sin, Jesus did all of the work to save me and presents it to me as a free gift. What Catholicism and um, any denomination has its roots in Calvinism, whether they recognize that they have their roots in Calvinism or not, um, Catholicism and any denomination that has its roots in Calvinism, such as mainline Protestantism, um, are going to make the claim that Jesus and I work together, we cooperate together for our salvation or for justification. So um, they use different verbiage depending on uh, the church body or their history, Uh, but it's going to be something to the effect of um, I rise to meet Jesus halfway, Um, Jesus begins the work and we complete it, or the other way around, Um, 
Jesus does Jesus um, Jesus starts the work and we we make it complete. Um, but no matter what verbiage they use or how they talk about it, essentially what it is is Jesus does some of the work, I do some of the work, and we cooperate together in order to save ourselves. Now, logically, if you think about that, what is the best work you could possibly do? Right? If your goal is to do good works, and if you're not totally sure that you're saved or to degree, the degree to which you are saved, and you really want to make sure that you are saved, so you're working hard to work out your own salvation, you're not sure if you're saved or not, what's the ultimate good work? Right? As Christians, we believe that we are not citizens of this world, we are citizens of the next world. Right? And you cannot be saved unless you have faith in Jesus. So the ultimate good work would be to bring other people to Jesus. Right? And so what a lot of mainline Protestants, and particularly American evangelicals, if you've ever been uh, involved at all with American evangelicals, it's almost creepy sometimes how forceful they are with the presentation of the gospel. And if you're familiar with some of the major names like Hillsong or... Um, I'm not thinking of any of the big ones off the top of my head, but generally they have a really bad reputation for bringing people in. So they have um, a great reputation for bringing in converts. They're really good at converting people to Christianity, and then they don't disciple those people. And so you get all kinds of weird things going on behind the scenes because they haven't actually discipled those people because their their concern is not discipleship. Their concern is conversion, getting people to convert to Christianity because that's the greatest possible good. And the dirty little secret of all of that is it's really all about them earning their own salvation. So the individuals involved doing good things so that they might be saved by those good things, it really isn't about providing you salvation. It's really not about the work of the Holy Spirit. What it's about is doing is amassing this great number of good works to the degree that there's no doubt I will be saved. And then when I arrive at heaven's gates, Jesus pats me on the back and says, come on in, good and faithful servant. As Orthodox Christians, it does not matter how big my pile of good works is. When I arrive in heaven, there won't be a record of good works that Jesus reads off when I get there and says, well done, good and faithful servant. He will say, well good, done, good and faithful servant, because when he looks at me, he sees Jesus. Okay? My I my righteousness, my personal righteousness, has no bearing on my salvation. My personal righteousness has been replaced in the sight of God with Jesus' righteousness. And because when God looks at me, he sees Jesus, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Now, that does not mean that the Orthodox Christian is not concerned about good works, because if you've ever read the book of James, you recognize that faith without works is dead. But that's a symptom of faith, not a requirement of faith. And that's a conversation for a different time. If you haven't read your Formula of Concord, man, go do it. Go read the, um, the Lutheran Confessions are uh, all printed together and bound up together in single volumes all the time. Um, pretty much any um, Lutheran denomination is going to have one. Like, so the Northwestern Publishing House and Concordia Publishing House both have excellent 
excellent um, translations of the Lutheran Confessions. Go buy a copy of the Lutheran Confessions, read them, study them. Luther actually suggested that, and many of the Lutheran fathers throughout the years have suggested that part of your daily Bible study, you actually go through the catechism. Um, I would even add to that, you can go through all of the Lutheran Confessions. Just read a pair, they're, they're short paragraphs. I mean, just read one concept every day, right? It takes five minutes to read them. Um, it'll help you better understand the teachings of your church, and it'll help you better understand the teachings of the Bible as well. But that's not the subject of the podcast today. It's background knowledge you need. The subject of the podcast today is actually Christian nationalism. And you'll understand, I think, as we go, why I wanted to make sure that we understood the difference between evangelicalism, like American evangelicalism and mainline Protestantism, and orthodoxy. Okay, because uh, it is going to make a big difference in how we interact with politics. But taking a step back, we need to recognize that most governments over time, and really even now today, in the twenty first, yeah, twenty first century, nearly all governments over time and even now look drastically different than the government that we have here in the United States. We have a true representative republic, okay, and our um representatives are chosen democratically. So it's important that we have a good under, a solid understanding of what the United States government actually looks like. It is not a true democracy. It is not a true republic. It is a representative republic where the um, representatives are chosen through a democratic process. And that also is an important uh, important thing to remember. Uh, but with that in mind, we can recognize that there really hasn't been a government over time that was set up this way, and there really isn't another government in our time set up this way. The United States government is truly unique. There are democracies in the world, there are republics in the world, there are representative monarchies in the world, but there is not another country, there is not another government, and there has never been in history one that looks quite like the United States. Okay? And as such, all of them, or nearly all of them, has had either a monarchy or an adjacent autocracy of some kind as their leader. So there is somebody in charge. Um, right now, if you take a look at, I think the one everybody's most familiar with at the moment is the English monarchy because of the crown and because of all the different things that have happened in the royal family over the last 25, 30 years. Most Americans, at least, or most people in the English-speaking world are intimately familiar with the royal family, and there's some confusion about what the function of the royal family actually is. Um, I also don't really completely understand, but what we need to remember is that the monarchy still is technically in charge of the entire country, and the prime minister operates the government on behalf of the monarchy. So, there is a plethora of circumstances where the monarchy could choose to reestablish themselves as the sole um, rulers of the English Empire and declare themselves to be such again. It probably won't happen anytime soon, but it is possible, and they do still retain that authority, but the family has willingly given up that authority to the people as a representative monarchy, okay? 
But since they have a monarchy or an adjacent autocracy, an autocracy would be any time where you have one person in charge or a small group of people in charge. So um, you think about generally people are also familiar with Nazi Germany. That would be an autocracy. There's one man sitting on the top who has ultimate authority. Um, Another good example would be New Zealand. New Zealand, they are a true democracy, but whoever sits on top of the democracy, whoever has been elected, is an autocrat. Okay, so they don't have a presidency quite like ours. They do have a ruling body, but whoever sits at the top is the one in control who is in charge. The United States president is not that guy. The United States president has all kinds of red tape that he has to deal with, and he has um, pretty severe limits to his authority. As we have seen with both President Trump and President Biden, they are kept in bounds by that authority, and that's not going to change anytime soon either. So, A monarchy or adjacent autocracy, um, a situation where there is one person who is the head of the government or a small group of people who are the head of the government, and they are not... um they are not subject to the people, the people are subject to them, always are going to have a state church because whatever the, the predominant views or the prevailing views of the um, aristocracy or autocracy or monarchy are, are going to be the official views of the government. And if it's the official view of the government, it is the official rule of the nation. Okay, so anytime you have one person sitting on the throne, whether it's a dictator, whether it is an autocracy, whether it is a monarchy, anytime you have one person or a small group of people sitting at the top of society, dictating laws and controlling the government and so forth, whatever they believe is going to be the state church, okay, or whatever they profess to believe, because we can all think of examples of people who are a member of a church, but they don't actually believe what the church says. That's not the conversation here. Whatever their official religion is, is going to be the state church. Uh, That doesn't necessarily mean that no other churches or religions are allowed in such countries, um, but the non-state church, even when it is the dominant church, so even when it's the most popular church, is still going to be a church militant. And as such, non-state churches, in order to be allowed to continue existing as they do, must subject themselves to the authority of the autocracy. So if I, in England, want to be a Catholic, the official church in England is the Church of England, right? The official church of Ireland is Catholicism. Ireland is under the British crown, but are allowed to remain Catholic as long as they behave themselves. And during the 90s and early 2000s, we saw, well, maybe not so much the early 2000s, but anyway, the in the 90s and 80s, we saw what happens when the Catholics step outside their lane and try to assert themselves, there, bec- there is conflict then between the state church and the non-state church, and it never goes well for the non-state church. And so it is in the, the non-state church best interest to at least be bearable to the state church. So it's basically the state church's little brother who, even though they disagree, even though they don't see eye to eye, they kind of have to play ball in order to be allowed to continue to exist. And that effectively means that whoever the monarch is or whoever the the autocrat is still has a pretty extreme level of control that they can exert over the church that isn't even a non-state church because the non-state church is always under threat of annihilation. If they step out of bounds, 
they can be eliminated, either through taxes, through actual arrest and prosecution, um, through exile. We watch over and over and over throughout history these things happen, and there is no reason why it cannot also happen today. And so I think the best example of that, what people are most familiar with, is probably the Irish um, Catholics and the Church of England battling it out in the 90s in the British Isles. On a state church on the other side, politics and religion are going to be inextricably tangled because the government controls the church. Right, So even if they are two separate entities, the head of the state church is the government, or, or I'm sorry, the head of the state church, yeah, the head of the state church is generally going to be the monarch or it's going to be um, the autocrat who's at the top. And even if they're not officially at the top, um, because it is the official church of the government, it is going to have to uh, play ball with the government also. So... Um, religious nationalism is all but required in a situation like that, where the official church of the government has to align themselves with the government or they will face consequences from the government. Um, so as they clearly are a part of that government hierarchy, they must either align themselves with the government or they risk losing their posts. And I would love to say that clergy are strong-willed and strong-minded and they will refuse to do that. But when push comes to shove, we find that human nature rules. And most humans, when faced with the choice of either kowtowing to the authority and keeping their post or in privileged position or standing on their beliefs, will find the mass of clergy over time have done just that. They have kowtowed to authority, um, particularly outside of the Orthodox Church, because the Orthodox holds a very, very high um, view of Scripture, and that means that Scripture is the Word of God, and that um, God is the ultimate authority in their lives. If you don't have that view of Scripture, then it's not a big deal to shift and to change some of the um, doctrines that you teach and believe in order to appease someone who's in charge. Um, that becomes much, much easier when you're no longer an Orthodox church. If you are an Orthodox clergy, and you have sworn with your hand on the Bible or whatever situation it is, you've been ordained in a church where um, Scripture is, where we have a high view of Scripture and Scripture is the Word of God, it's going to be a lot harder um, to um, basically relinquish your beliefs to whatever the government says. But if you are not a part of an Orthodox church, you've already changed and shifted and applied reason to Scripture anyway, and so it becomes pretty easy to continue doing that um, and make the state church look the way the government wants it to look. I'm not saying it's a good thing. It's just a reality of what we have seen over time. Most clergy are glad to be in the state church. They like being in the state church. They want to retain the status that the state church provides them. And because of those desires, they will make efforts and sacrifices to do so, even when they are not in the best interest of the church or perhaps are contrary to the word of God. The United States, because we are independent um, of any state religion, we are very intentionally so, because we have no state religion and because we are a true representative republic, we often confuse our rights as citizens with Christian rights because all of the documents that govern us are written in religious language um, 
and we say things like the God-given right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That is not a doctrinal, that is not a, a scriptural doctrine. It is an American doctrine. It is not a scriptural doctrine. Now, they are drawn out of scripture, and I am certainly happy to live in a nation where they are the reality. But that doesn't mean that they are Christian rights, that they are truly God-given rights. It just means that our government recognizes them as rights which they are inalienable. Okay, And it's a wonderful thing to live in a country where our rights are inalienable, but that does not mean that it's the same thing as a Christian right. And so we often, as Americans, get our American rights, our rights that we receive as citizens of the United States of America, we get those things confused with um, with Christian doctrine, One, because we're not particularly well-educated on Christian doctrine, and two, because we're not particularly well-educated on our rights as Americans either. So a representative republic presents a very unique challenge for Christians, Uh, and the question that's kind of always on our mind as Orthodox Christians is how do we actively participate in a democratic process without subverting the authority of those ruling over us? So in other words, um, we want to live up to the biblical ideals that are presented by Jesus, right, and by Paul in, in uh, the epistles, and love and honor and respect our, um, our leaders in government. But because of the unique position we're in as Americans, we do have the right and the privilege of criticizing them and replacing them if we disagree with them or if they displease us. Um. And so there's always going to be a little bit of tension between the Christian ideal and the American political process because we hold um, a very high view of our politicians. We see them as ordained by God to be in their positions, but we also exercise some sort of authority of who holds those positions. And so it's a little bit of a weird blend of being ordained by God, but then also being elected by human beings. Um, There's a trend over the last couple of decades towards dependence on the state. So there's more and more people in the United States who don't see any problem with being dependent on their government. We see that in the increase of um, school choice programs, which I personally am in support of school choice. Like I'm not criticizing these things. I'm just pointing out the reality of the situation. Um, There's been a massive increase in um, school choice programs. Uh, We are very dependent on our government to provide government schooling. We are very dependent on our government to provide um, welfare for the poor, for those who are disabled, those who need food stamps, so forth. Um, We rely on the government for pretty much everything, for our roads. Um, We rely on on government funding to subsidize our farmers. Like Pretty much every aspect of life and economy, we have turned over to the government in some way, shape, or form. And that has grown exponentially over the last 20, 30 years. And what that means is we generally are pretty comfortable, actually, with the government interfering in our daily lives. But what we need to recognize is that when the government intervenes, they do so on their own terms. There are stipulations, right? There's a trade-off. When we give up our liberties to the government in, or basically we're giving up our liberty to the government in trade for some sort of benefit. So a really simple example of that would be um, we trade in uh, our ability to drive as fast as we want. We trade that in for safer roads, right? So we agree, we're basically in a social contract with the United States, with our local government that says, all right, 
I give you the right to issue tickets in exchange for safer roads. Okay, So I give up my liberty. I technically, as an American, have the right to drive as fast as I want. But being a citizen of my county, I give the sheriff my liberty and say, I give up my liberty in the name of having safer roads. And now they have laws that have been put in place by a representative republic in order to keep us safe. And we ask the police to enforce those laws in order to give us safer roads to drive on. It doesn't mean it's not annoying to get a speeding ticket, but it is part of the trade-off of having safer roads. Right? When the government intervenes, they do so on their own terms. And so if you're a Christian who wants to keep their governmental assistance, which many Christians do, you have two choices. You can either bend to the will of the government, which we often do, particularly in regards to like drug use, um, speed limits, things like that, right? Um, even with schooling, things like that. You can either bend to the will of the government or you can try and bend the government to your own will. And that's what a lot of the people who are being labeled by the media as Christian nationalists are doing. And frankly, that is actually what Christian nationalists do. So your two choices, if you want to be able to keep government involved in your life, is either to play by the government's rules or bend the government to your will. And at this moment in our national scene, a lot of times the government and the church or the government and Christians are opposed to each other. They stand in opposition to each other. They're not getting along because the values of the government are very different than the values of the church. And so what's beginning to happen is the government is fighting tooth and nail to keep their hands on the establishment. They want to stay in power. And the largest and Christians, the largest swath of whom in the United States are American evangelicals and mainline Protestants, they are fighting tooth and nail to get the government to bend to their will, which is the beauty of the American system, but it does get messy sometimes. And so what Christian nationalism today basically looks like is it's an attempt to establish a state church. And nobody nobody actually, I don't think, I shouldn't say nobody, most people don't actually want to give up our religious freedom in order to have a state church. But effectively, what most Christian nationalists want, what most uh, mainline Protestants want, what most American evangelicals want, is a society that looks more Christian, and that is in, uh, that is in practice, like it's practically a state church. Um, that's basically what it is. So what mainline Protestant churches want is for their beliefs to be the state church because it makes it a lot easier to be a Christian and it makes it a lot easier to do the things which they value, which is to be able to convert people. It makes it easier to be a Christian. It lowers the bar to becoming a quote-unquote Christian because just being a good person is the same thing as being a Christian if I believe in cooperative justification. So if my good works count towards my salvation, just being a good person is good enough. At the moment, it's really hard to be a quote-unquote good Christian in the Christian standard and be a part of the American society. And so what they're trying to do is reshape American society to look more like their ideal in order to make it easier to be a Christian. Now, that does not have overwhelmingly negative consequences. In my opinion, I would love to see our country look a little bit more Christian. But, okay, we need to be very careful about who we align ourselves with politically because um, they're cr trying to create a state where 
their version of Christianity is the dominant form of Christianity, not orthodoxy. We need to recognize that what um, most of our politicians are teaching and preaching, because frankly they are preaching a religious um, a uh, religious agenda, uh, they are teaching a religious dogmatic when they make the claims that they make. What they're trying to do is establish a culture where their beliefs are the dominant beliefs, and it is effectively a state church. Um, a good example of that would be the Catholic Church. What does the Catholic Church... There, so there's kind of two wings of the Catholic Church. There's the conservative side of the Catholic Church and the liberal side of the Catholic Church. At the moment, the liberal side of the Catholic Church is very well represented by the Pope. And what has the Pope consistently done since he became the Pope? So since Pope Francis became the Pope, what has he consistently done over time? He has slowly but surely made the Catholic Church look more and more and more like popular society. Why is he doing that? He's doing that so that more people are allowed to be Catholic, right? They want to change with the times so that people are not um, required to leave the Catholic Church because of their beliefs. So the reason that um, the Catholic Church is now blessing gay marriages is so that those people who are homosexuals can remain in the church and they can continue to have the influence that they enjoy. They can continue to evolve as a church, as they say, and um, they can continue to have the same level of authority and control over society across the world as they currently do. Okay, The same thing is happening with um, American Calvinists who believe in millennialism. They believe that Jesus cannot come back until the whole church is united. And because they believe that Jesus is sitting up in heaven waiting for us all to be united as a church so that he can come back, they will excuse all kinds of awful behaviors in the name of Jesus coming back, which don't actually uh, which don't actually rep- which are not representative of what the Bible actually teaches. Okay, and the same thing is happening in politics at the moment with American evangelicalism and uh, mainline Protestantism. We've all seen the stories in the news. I think the most notable one was the two guys, the two Christian guys, um, who several years ago um, stopped a black man who was running um, because they believed that he was um, because he, they believed that he had trespassed somewhere or something like that, and then they ended up shooting him and killing him, right? And they both went to jail, and they deserved to go to jail, for the record. Um, they deserved the death penalty, in my opinion, but that's that's neither here nor there. Um, what happened, essentially, is they are functional Christian nationalists who believe that the entire country— there should not be a plurality of, of, of uh, beliefs and doctrines. There should not be a plurality of religions. What they want is for their religion to be dominant, and their behavior reflects that. Right? And their behavior or, or, and their beliefs are that anyone who does not agree with them um, on a political and religious level, because to them, religion and politics are the same thing, basically, or they are so closely intertwined that they cannot be separated. So when they see a black man who is probably not sharing their religious beliefs um, and their religious beliefs are all tied up in their politics, then they can do whatever they want in the name of the church because the church equals um, the government, right? And they have a, a state church view of the situation, okay? Um, 
so without, I don't want to be too long winded. So we're going to wind it down here. Um, Christians, Christian, there, the Orthodox Christians and evangelical Christians are not the same. Orthodox Christians and mainline Protestants are not the same. And we make a tremendous mistake if we believe them to be the same. And if we get sucked in as Orthodox Christians into the web of what is um, the political scene before us at the moment. Um, just because a uh, now or a, a uh, uh, shoot, what do you call it? A candidate, there we go. Just because a candidate presents themselves as a Christian, even as a Bible-believing Christian, doesn't necessarily mean that they share the same worldview as you, right? And just because Christians, in quotation marks, right, American Christians are supporting a candidate, doesn't mean that they represent your views as an Orthodox Christian, okay? We don't want to get caught up in that. That's what happened with Donald Trump. And I'm not here to talk about Donald Trump. You can vote for him if you want. You cannot vote for him if you want. Um, I honestly haven't decided who I'm voting for yet. But Donald Trump is not really an evangelical Christian, and he certainly does not represent the values of Orthodox Christianity. And yet he somehow also is the headliner. <laughs> he is the face of American evangelicalism, even though he himself is not an evangelical, which is bizarre. And it happens because the American evangelicalism quite often um, devolves into Christian nationalism because what they want is an autonomy of belief, right? They want a monopoly on religion in the United States. They want everybody to believe what they believe. They don't actually want freedom of religion. And so they see um, Donald Trump or whoever might be the candidate who best represents them as the opportunity to create that world. That is not what you think and believe as a Christian, as an Orthodox Christian, as a Bible-believing Christian. So don't get caught up in that mess. Okay. Um, I'm going to look at my notes here. I might repeat myself. I apologize if I do. Don't get caught in the Christians should be trap. So in quotation marks, Christians should be Democrats. Christians should be Republicans. Anybody that says that to you, automatically massive red flag. Take everything they say after that with a grain of salt. Christian nationalists appear on both sides of the aisle, and um, they often will defy scriptural teachings about governmental authority in the name of creating a Christian state, or at least maintaining what they understand as Christian rights, which are not actually Christian rights. They're American rights, which we believe to be our Christian rights because we don't really understand what the Bible says. Okay, So anytime anybody tries to tell you that because of your faith as a Christian, you have to vote a certain way, or you have to be involved in a certain um, campaign or whatever it is, immediately immediately stop looking at them as a moral authority because they do not, if they're making such a statement, they do not understand what Scripture actually teaches and they are not speaking with the authority of Scripture. Okay, um, My other piece of advice would be don't get too high or too low. Um, don't get too hot or too cold on any candidate or any political party. When you like and admire your political leaders, remember that they're just men. And they may and probably will let you down at some point. Uh, if you watched the last season of The Crown, it was really easy to see that with um, uh, Tony uh, Tony Blair. Yeah, it was Tony Blair. 
because Tony Blair was incredibly popular at the beginning of his uh, tenure as prime minister. By the end of his tenure as prime minister, he was incredibly unpopular. That is not an uncommon story. That happens with pretty much every political figure ever. At one, some point, they're loved. At some point, they're hated. Okay, And it's usually because of their be- behavior. So don't get too high or too low on any candidate. Um, vote with your conscience and uh, do the best you can. Okay, When you're unhappy with your political leaders, remember that they are still God's representatives and you're required to respect, obey, and honor them. Even pray for them, especially if you didn't vote for them. So just because you didn't vote for somebody, just because you disagree with their politics, doesn't mean that you don't have to respect, obey, and honor them. You still are required as a Christian who serves his Heavenly Father, you are expected as a child of God to honor, respect, and obey your governmental leaders. The only caveat there is if they ask you to sin. And I hate to tell you, folks, during COVID-19, there were very, very few situations where the government actually asked Christians to sin. And the argument about that was, hey, they told us to stop gathering together, and Scripture says stop gathering together. In most places, the complete cessation of gathering together was very short-lived. And then we were allowed to gather together again, but under certain requirements. And we didn't like the requirements, and a whole bunch of Christians then said, well, you're infringing on my Christian right to gather. You're making us sin by telling us that there are are stipulations to the way we gather. That's not how Scripture works. This is the Word of God, and all he said was, let us not stop gathering together. So keep gathering together as well as you possibly can, and also honor your representatives. Now, if there had been a governor who straight up said, you are not allowed to assemble, which is like that did happen in some places, right? Um, California is a good example. I, I, I'm very glad that I was not in California during COVID. That's a whole lot closer to the, um, to the line of whether or not a government is asking you to sin than, for example, Wisconsin, where I actually was, where we were never forced to close completely our churches and schools without an end date, right? We there was a point at which we they asked us not to go to church and school anymore, or church in particular, but it was they told us when the end date was going to happen, and then they honored that end date and they allowed us to reopen our doors. Okay, and at the beginning, pretty much everybody was agreeable to that because it, we weren't sure how bad it was all going to be. Anyway, I don't want to harp on this for too long. I'm just saying. We often get our American rights and our Christian rights mixed up, <laughs> and our uh, it, it's not it it's not wise. We got to make sure we know what we believe. Okay. Getting back to my point, even if you didn't vote for somebody, you still need to love and respect them and obey them and honor them the way that Scripture commands you to. Um, finally, it's generally wise to avoid political affiliation. I know some of you guys are going to disagree with me on this. I'm not making a mandate. I'm not making a commandment that says, how dare you be politically affiliated? I'm just saying it's generally wise to avoid political affiliation because when the tide of ideas shifts away from what you believe within the party that you support, um, 
which is going to happen sooner. We're seeing it happen right now in the Democratic Party. 60 years ago, it was almost half an... I just read a book about this, actually. 60 years ago, or as you, yeah, 60 years ago in the 1960s, the, conser- the confessional Lutheran churches were nearly split down the middle on political affiliation. Half the church was Republican, half the church was Democratic. That is, um, it was totally normal. Like, there were only a couple issues on the Democratic side, which made it hard to be a Democrat. And there were actually more issues on the Republican side, which made it kind of hard to be a Republican. Obviously, that has shifted at the moment. There's very little on the Democratic side of things, um, which I can support as a Christian. That does not mean that they will not change over time. And it does not mean that um, the ideas represented by Democratic and Republican candidates isn't going to shift. And so what I would suggest, instead of joining a political party, okay, make sure that you remain independent so that you're free to follow your conscience. So um, go ahead and support candidates and ideas, but don't join political parties. That's my, that's my advice. Okay, And take it, take it or leave it. You don't have to do what I tell you to do. But what I would suggest is remain politically independent so that you can vote for whoever you think best represents your ideals. Okay, We often blur the lines of political and moral ideas. Um, stubbornly maintaining political independence is going to allow you to be an independent thinker and vote for who you actually think best, re- best represents your ideals. And that would be the last thing I say. My biggest regret from the last uh, presidential election is that I didn't vote for the person who my conscience compelled me to vote for. I didn't want my vote to be thrown away, basically. I didn't. I thought if I didn't vote for one of the major two candidates that I essentially was wasting my vote. I think my attitude on that has shifted. And you don't have to agree with me on this. I understand, I understand everybody's got different views on it. That's fine. I'm just saying, personally, there was another candidate besides the two major, major candidates for whom... I th- or who I thought best represented my beliefs and my si- my belief system, per- particularly politically, and I did not vote for them because I didn't want my vote to go to waste. I have now come to the view that I don't think that is a waste of a vote. Um, I think it's valuable for those people to receive votes, and it's valuable and encouraging to other people who support those candidates to see those votes being compiled and being tallied up. Um, And I think one of the best things that could happen to our country at the moment is for the two-party system to shift back into a... um, a plethora of parties, like three or more parties, I think would probably be the best way to go. And you do see that throughout the world, not in countries as large as ours, um, but in you know, uh, in Italy, in France. Like, there's a bunch of other places that have representative democracies or republics um, that have uh, a plurality of political parties. And I think that's probably a good thing. Um, and so I don't mind being, even if I don't know, I haven't decided who I'm going to vote for, as I said. Um, but I don't think I'll hesitate in the future to vote for a third-party candidate um, if I believe that that third-party candidate is the best representation of what I actually believe. So just putting that earworm in your ear. Um, I want to make sure everybody understands what uh, what's really going on here. I hope I was clear. Um, there aren't a whole lot of people that really want the Christian church, especially the, a specific denomination of the Christian church, to be the official state church of the United States. I think most Americans recognize and value the freedom of religion that we have. But on a practical level, a lot of Christians 
want the world to look more like what they believe. And so they're doing some weird things politically and even some immoral things from time to time um, in the name of establishing a state which is more friendly to Christianity. Don't get caught up um, in in the politics to the extent that you begin to excuse sin in the name of Christ. And that's basically what's happening in a lot of places. They're excusing sin in the name of Christ because they believe that they're doing a good work, which um, which cre- is credited to them uh, for their salvation. And it's just not true. Um, so my encouragement is to stay politically independent. Vote for the person who your conscience tells you is the best candidate. And uh, trust that God has providence over all things because he does. And the other really comforting thing to me is that um, the church has endured all things. From the moment Jesus rose from the dead until now, the church has endured all things. And what we've got going on in our political scene at the moment and in our country, it's not fun and it's not pretty, but it's definitely not the worst thing the church has endured. The church will continue to endure until the day Jesus comes back, and we ought to put our faith in Jesus and not in our political leaders. The other thing I would say is, while I certainly do wish our culture better represented Christian values, it's not the worst thing for our culture to be so corrupt that everybody who looks at Christians says, wow, there's something different about you. Because that's going to draw people into church. It's going to draw people to our ideas. They're going to be more receptive to our ideas because there's something different about us. That's just a little bit of a of an earworm, too. So I love you guys. I hope you go be the men that God created you to be. We will talk to you next week. On behalf of all those involved in producing, recording, editing, and distributing this episode, thank you for listening to the Gird Up Podcast. If you'd like to contact us with comments, questions, or suggestions, you can reach out to us at any of the links in the description below or on our website. Please consider supporting the work of Gird Up Ministries by donating on Patreon, shopping at our online store, or making a $5 cup of coffee donation at www.girdupministries.com. Those donations help us make more great content just like this for young men just like you. Make sure you like, friend, follow, and subscribe to Gird Up and all of our guests on your social media platforms and consider leaving a five-star rating and review wherever you listen to the Gird Up podcast so that others can find us and be blessed by our content too. As always, thanks for listening. Now go and be the man that God created you to be. We'll see you next time.